My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. This podcast series was recorded over Zoom during the lockdown period. This was part of an exclusive event laid on for veterans and serving personnel. We'd like to thank our guests for allowing us to release part of this conversation for you in podcast format. In this episode, we speak to veteran in politics, Doug Beattie, MCMLA. Doug is a decorated veteran having been awarded the Military Cross in Afghanistan. This was just one of Doug's 13 operational tours in a military career that can only be described as epic. He is now a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly representing his hometown and despite all of these achievements you will hear him humbly describe his life as a bit of an accident. He talks about his entry into local politics as a councillor, how he lives by our stand-up serve again mantra and the advantages of using his military and personal brand in political life. This is one episode you do not want to miss. Prepare to be inspired. It's time for you to listen to the conversation. First of all, I mean, this is absolutely fantastic, you know, to, to, um, to come on here. I mean, this technology, this virtual world we're all living in now is, is very different from what we're used to, but it's something that we just need to adapt ourselves to. And, and um, I, I'm not used to this, but it's, it's, it's wonderful to, to, to get involved. Um, Many of those who are in the in the in the chat may well know that that I've been a, a career soldier for a long time, having joined the army uh, in 1982 as a young ranger, as a private soldier, uh, and progressed through through the ranks to become uh, the regimental sergeant major of my battalion, which was um, the second uh, the first battalion in the Royal Irish uh, Regiment. Um, my commanding officer was Colonel Tim Collins, and uh, uh, I stood beside Colonel Tim when he gave his uh, now famous eve of battle speech. Um, you know, which which um, which is great, but but you know, it was just a moment in time, and and I've had many moments in time, including the guarding of Rudolf Hess, including the the guarding of the cruise missiles at Greenham Common and 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 Bosnia and, and Kosovo and various other places like that. But but I guess the invasion of Iraq and and being the regimental sergeant major when you take your battalion to war the first time uh, my battalion has gone to war um, since Korea, um, I, I think is a is a is a real milestone, and and I was. I was very gifted to to have done that. Um, uh, having completed that and completed my tour of the RSM, I, I found myself getting bounced around the world a little bit. Uh, I went to be the RSM of, of S4 in Sarajevo for a, a period of time. Um, uh, and I then went to, I can't remember who it was, what, at the division it was, but I was in Craigie Hall uh, in Edinburgh as the RSM there for, for a little period of time as well before I, commissioned to, to become a, a, an army officer, a late entry army officer uh, in 2005. And um, from that period on, um, I guess my my time as a commissioned officer was um, all um, regulated between uh, training uh, at ITC Catrick um, to moving on to doing three tours 
uh, of Afghanistan. So I did three tours of Afghanistan, which started in 2006, and my last one finished uh, in 2011, uh, and I was pretty burnt out by that stage. Um, and I was intent on leaving the military, but very luckily for me, I, I was employed as a permanent staff administration officer for a, a reserve battalion, uh, and, and I took that up. And here's where it got quite interesting for me because my life has been about accidents in many ways. So um, I, I was a, a PSAO for two All-Irish based in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, I was in Belfast. Uh, but the workload was was not what I was used to. The speed of life wasn't what I was used to. But I still wanted to serve more and I wanted to do more um, for for my community. But uh, I got fatter. Uh, my hair got greyer. I, I, I got glasses. You know, I'm a little bit slower than I, Where, than I Where's used to the beard, be, Doug? You had a lovely yeah, beard. And the well. beard comes and goes uh, as, as I want. But but I, I really had that sense of wanting to continue to serve, but not being able to serve in the same way because physically I'd got older and things had moved on. Um, and I'd find I'd had extra time. So uh, I, I joined a political party. Um, uh, and then within two weeks, a political party asked me to stand in the local elections local council elections, and, and I did, um, and was elected as a local councillor for my local council, which is called Armagh City, Banbridge and Craig Avonborough Council. It's pretty catchy, that, isn't it? Um, uh, and I did that for, for a couple of years. Uh, and then again, they, they asked, look, would you stand to be an MLA in the Assembly? Uh, I never thought much about it, and I said yes. And, and I was elected first time. That was um, uh, 2016. Um, uh, and I've been an MLA uh, since. So that's four years as MLA and two years as a, as a, as a councillor. So that's the sum of my of my time as a, 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 a in in politics. But I've got to say, purely by accident, I've gone from being a young ranger with no educational qualifications, and I still have none, um, through to being an RSM, to being commissioned, um, uh, to um, uh, being elected to to um, the, the local assembly here in Northern Ireland. And that's pretty much my life in a nutshell. And a little bit of other things thrown in between. I, I managed to write three books, uh, received the Military Cross and the Queen's Commendation for Bravery and the NATO Meritorious Service Medal and some award for Northern Ireland as well. So all of them are little snippets thrown into a life which has been quite full. It's a phenomenal life and an absolutely cool. phenomenal career. And uh, for those of you that haven't um, grabbed hold of a copy of Doug's book, I'd highly recommend it. Um, and to you more casually explain your life there and you just sort of sit back here listening going absolutely wow um but i think for me what really strikes me in that is that you know in terms of you serving again in politics people actually asking you to serve again was probably the critical thing you say it's by accident but actually being asked to serve again it really strikes me as a fundamental question that we don't ask our armed forces community and that's certainly something that we endeavor to do with campaign force but I mean, they, you did get asked to serve again, but why did you say yes? What really drove you into politics? Well, well I mean, it's really interesting of, of campaign force because they use, that, they use that term serve again. And I guess if it's, if it's within you as a person that you want to serve, then it's in and it, it never really leaves you. You, you, you. you get older, you get frailer. We all know this. Um, but that sense of duty, that sense of service never really leaves you. Uh, and, and when I was asked to, to, to serve again, um, this time as in, in the political arena, I, I really did stop and think about it. And, and I thought, well, what can I offer? What can I offer? What can I take with me that, that, that I've learned over many years in the military? And, 
and, and, and is it transferable into politics? And I suddenly realized that it absolutely is, that the, that, that, that the left and right of arc that I have as a person from my time in the military um, actually aids the ability to, to, to get into politics and to be able to, 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 put, a point, to put a point across. Um, so that, that fundamental question of, you know, um, if I got into politics, could I add value to what I was trying to achieve? Uh, and I really analysed that, and I thought that I could, and, and, and indeed um, other people thought similar. And, and therefore, I, I stepped into the political arena with a view to um, bringing in my brand of politics, my brand of engagement, uh, my brand of openness and honesty and transparency and, and professionalism. Uh, and, and that's what really drew me into that political, political sphere. That I, I thought I could really honestly, genuinely uh, engage and, and, and make a difference in politics. And I think we'll unpick that, some of those things that drive you in terms of those sure. values and, and skills uh, later on in the chat. But, um, I mean, you had a distinguished mili- military career from a boy soldier, RSM, LE commissioning. Um, and I think um, I looked up sort of 13 plus operational tours. Pretty phenomenal, yeah. time, particularly for you and your family to spend all that time away on, on operations. But after a career that was so long, that covered, spanned decades, what was more challenging, transitioning out of the military or transitioning into politics? Well, well I've got to say that there's an interesting point here, I suppose. And I guess if we take politics aside, I think transitioning out of the military is, is, is quite difficult for, for anybody whether it's into politics or into something else. But, but here's what I found really, really difficult, and, and people will know this from politics. Within the military, you're part of a, a large team. You're, you're part of a team who works for each other, and, they, and we generally do. And, and if something needs doing, we do it because everything's mission-centered, um, uh, and, and we make sure that the task is done. And one of the big things I found in politics, although you're part of a political grouping, in my part, the Ulster Unionist Party, although you're part of a political grouping, you're actually, in some ways, a group of individuals, because come election time, you you have to fight your own. Seat. So your success is about you and what you do. So within politics, there's a sense which I was never used to, that you do have to operate as an individual, uh, and yes, as an individual within a collective, a political party. But you really have to learn how to operate as an as an individual. I find it really, really difficult because I suddenly find myself doing things for other people, and whenever I was asking for something similar to come back, you know, it just didn't happen. So that that transferable piece from the military to to um, to, to politics for me was was quite difficult, and it made politics a hard arena to get in. But, the, but there's, there's a dichotomy here is when you get into it, then you can start bringing that brand from the military and, and then transcribing it into that arena and saying, well, like, this is how we need to do things. This is how we analyze things. This is how we work together. And if you work as a unit, then you have a better, better outcome. So although you may have to work as an individual, you know, it, it's the collective output that will either help you get elected or not elected or get your points across when you're in an assembly um, uh, or, or, or you're, you're in, a, in, a, in a group making, making decisions in a committee or something like that. But I find that transition into politics difficult, but only because it's a different way of operating. Uh, and actually, my service in the military was something that really helped me generate um, the way I did business while I was in the while I'm, in, while I'm in politics. 
I think what you just described there is is we can all resonate with whether or not we've transitioned into civilian environments and the piece of us that we bring from the armed forces into those organisations and also how you've turned a perceived negative into a positive. But would you say that's been your biggest challenge in politics so far, that kind of cultural understanding? uh, No, Uh, and and I'm going to be a little bit local. Uh, I'm in... I'm in Northern Ireland. Um, Northern Ireland remains a very divided um, society, no matter which way you look at it. Um, Within politics in Northern Ireland, it's not about voting to get somebody in. It's about voting to keep somebody out. And that's a hard hard task to get involved. So so I I guess my my biggest issue, you know, was was always about divided politics here in Northern Ireland. It it really is divided politics. Uh, And and that sense... um, of every word that you do is is viewed one side of a community differently than it is by another side of a community, mm-hmm. uh, and you know we 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 paramilitary groups, terrorist groups, knocking about here in Northern Ireland, uh, and and therefore you know and, and just today um, or last night I I received death threats from from loyalist paramilitary groups. You know, as an mm-hmm. Ulster Unionist, it's always difficult when you get it from loyalist paramilitary groups. But but um, you know you, you it, it, that's what's difficult here because. Um, People view you based on history in many ways. So many people in, a, in the nationalist or the Republican communities will view me because I was a one-time soldier as somebody not to be trusted. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I say, not to be trusted. And they unpick every single word that I say. So if I say something which is, um, uh, you know, pretty pretty straightforward, um, you know, they will unpick every word and they will they will find their own meaning with it, within that. So that's still so part of one of my biggest problems is trying to bring myself to parties here in Northern Ireland. That's, a, that's the hardest thing about politics here in Northern Ireland, not politics in general. I mean, that's a, uh, a pretty harrowing difference between perhaps politics on the mainland um, over here and Westminster and, and politics within Northern Ireland. And for some of us, that was quite difficult to, to hear, particularly those that are aspiring to serve their communities or go on into Westminster but to, to hear that from you, it's quite, it's quite stark. Um, and that's just, I guess, one of the, a, a huge difference. But people in, the, in, in mainland Britain um, and in England in particular will have little understanding of devolved government full stop. So yeah. what would you say are the key differences from where you see it between Westminster and devolved government? Well, well, we have a, a, a very specifics within um, the devolved government and the devolved settlement. That is that there are certain aspects of the decision-making process here in Northern Ireland which we will always make and we will decide. And that's been that's part of the devolution settlement. So anything to do with health, um, and, and COVID-19 is a prime example, that's to the devolved government to decide what direction we take in regards to, to health. Exactly the same with education um, uh, and exactly the same with housing and, and many other. So a, a lot of the things that um, you, you take for granted that come from Westminster in, when you come to the devolved settlement uh, or you come to the, the, the Assembly in Northern Ireland, they're, they're actually decisions made by us. And I'll give you an example of that, if I can, please. Um, uh, Boris Johnson yesterday laid out the, the plan for COVID-19. He changed the, the, the language that he's going to, to, to use, the yeah. stay alert language. But because health is devolved to Northern Ireland, we, we haven't followed that path. We are slightly different, so we have decided that actually 
we're different here in Northern Ireland. The demographics is different here in Northern Ireland. We need to look at it differently and we have the ability to do so. So we're stuck with the old message. So we're not changing and we have the right to do that. Uh, and we can do similar with, with, with other issues such as, such as education uh, and such as housing. So th- there is a difference that we have the ability to, to retain what's important to the people here uh, in Northern Ireland because we're, we're a very different society in Northern Ireland than you are in London or in Manchester or in Birmingham. We have the ability to, to retain some things that we think uh, are better for our people. Now, that all sounds great. And trying to government to the lowest person possible is, is what you're trying to do. You know, the, the more you can get government out of the top houses, you know, be that Westminster, be that the Northern Ireland Assembly or the Scottish Assembly, you know, the more we can get that down to, to, to local government and the more local government can get it down to the people, that's the best way to have governance. And that's what devolved governments get you. But it's it's not all positive. There's an awful lot of negatives. There. We have huge negatives here in regards to saying, sorry, but huge negatives in regards to abortion controls, you know, which we deal with and, and, and other things. Um, our judicial system is is really difficult here. Um, uh, because policing and justice has been devolved as well, so that's our responsibility. So our sentencing criteria is incredibly different here in Northern Ireland than it is in the rest of the United Kingdom, and that's something that we, we have to try in, uh, and, 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 and look at and, and make better. So there are many things here in Northern Ireland which, which we absolutely um, decide on how our path is going to be and what we're going to do. Um, but, but but some of that's not all positive. But there are also things that, that come from Westminster that we have no say over whatsoever. The armed forces is not devolved. We have no say of what happens in regards to the armed forces. But we do have a say in veterans because veterans need healthcare and healthcare is a devolved. So it does get a little bit complicated. I was going to say, I think um, in the early stages, I know you've been very outspoken on veterans affairs and the fact that Northern Ireland didn't have a seat at the table at the old Covenant reference group in number 10. Yeah. I guess as we've seen the transition to the Office of Veterans Affairs and veterans issues being more normalised, I guess, across government, across health, across education, and away from the sort of the ghettoization of veterans affairs at the MOD, that gives devolved um, government a huge opportunity to have an impact on veterans affairs um, and actually turning that perceived negative into one of those advantages of devolved government. Absolutely. And, and uh, we have just started the recruitment process for a, a veterans commissioner here in Northern Ireland, um, which, which will be appointed at the, at the end of, of this month, I believe, um, or, sh- or shortly after. And that's a, that's a positive, a real, a real positive, because there's, there's small things here in Northern Ireland that people just don't understand. And it's not their fault that they don't understand. I'll give you an example. When you leave the military and you transition to civilian life, you, you, you get enhanced learning credits in the form of a promissory note from the Ministry of Defence, but it has your name and your rank uh, and your address and what unit you served on in this promissory note. Many people in Northern Ireland won't use those enhanced learning credits because they won't go to a training provider because they don't know who's in that, and people are still concerned about security here in Northern Ireland. So that could be easily fixed by that promissory note being delivered in a different manner. So the small things like that, people maybe don't realise what's happening here in Northern Ireland and how... Um, the, the, the legacy of our of our of our troubles um, is still with us today. I mean, I still have to check my car three or four times a day um, because the threat is still very much here. Yesterday, um, you know, uh, Ato was out and cleared two IEDs uh, no more than three miles from where I'm sitting now talking to you. So um, that 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 
that hasn't changed. People don't hear about it, and that's a good thing in many ways because we don't want to raise its profile. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that it's happening. No, no. Well, again, just it's great having you in on this conversation just to re-remind some of us um, either that are from um, your part of the world or have served there that that is the reality of everyday life, and particularly for those like you that are putting your head above the parapet and serving again in public life. And being so open about your military background, I guess with you, Doug, you can't really hide it. <laughs> it, it, it really does um, hit home. And but it's interesting, Johnny, that you, you, you raised something there. Sorry to jump, jump across you. Mm, go for it. But there is one of the problems in Northern Ireland is we're, we're trying to normalise society here in Northern Ireland. And sometimes the MOD fail at this because they don't allow soldiers to normalise themselves here in Northern Ireland. And if we, if we allowed it to be normal, if we allowed being in the military something that's normal here in Northern Ireland, um, then, then that would that would help us. To, now, of course, the, the MOD, and I'm not blaming the MOD, they, they have a duty of care for their soldiers because the, the threat here is still at severe. Um, but, but we need to do something to try and normalise the fact that, that we have military who are permanently based here in Northern Ireland. I think it's something in a region of 4,000 permanently based here in Northern Ireland. Um, and, and until we normalise them being here, then, then we are always going to be, to be, to be chasing this narrative. And that that normalisation is something we need to do here um, in the uh, the rest of Britain too, because um, we still have this narrative of mad, bad, or sad versus everyone's a hero. Whereas we know that the vast majority of people, ninety five percent of veterans, say thereabouts, are just everyday folk who go and resettle in communities. Which is why it's so important that people stand up and serve again in their communities. With twenty thousand councillors across the UK, no one having a clue how many have got a military background. So the more that we can get people within positions of leadership in communities, the more normal it will seem to be a veteran. But until that happens, then you know the the media narrative and and certain quarters of the veterans community, who shall remain nameless, will be very vocal on Twitter and in providing an image that all veterans are broken or that everyone's a hero. So uh, normalisation is certainly something that we need to uh, address here in the rest of Britain too. It's, 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 it's interesting, Johnny, if I can. Uh, my party, the Unionist Party, we, I mean, we have, we have 10, 10 MLAs. Of those 10 MLAs, four are either serving or have served in the military. We've got a, our party lead, leader is a nuclear submarine, an ex-nuclear submarine commander. Um, we have a, a, uh, an MLA who lost both his legs in Afghanistan, Andy Allen. Um, and we have other members who are in the Army Reserve now. So there's a, there's a huge tradition of service within the Ulster Unionist Party uh, at that level. And if you go down to, to local um, council level, we, we, we have dozens um, who have served in, in the armed forces. So there, there's an awful lot of service here in Northern Ireland from the ex-military types. Oh, wow. I know I'd certainly uh, value some introductions to some of those people. Yeah. Um, um, so with that history of service, and um, we're just kind of going to dive into a little bit about some of those skills, um, you know, sport for choice with all of that record of service. But what would you say are those skills or values or experiences from military service that you've lent into during difficult times in politics, would you say? I, I, I think it's, I mean, I, I, I talked about it slightly earlier there, Johnny. It's the ability within the military where you, you deal with so many different people, not just within your unit, but with other units, but with civilian organizations. And then you serve overseas and you deal with, with other people from other military forces and, and other um, uh, agencies. Uh, it's that understanding of, of how other people operate, I, I think, is what gave me an extremely wide left 
uh, and right of arc. And that left and right of arc has been really important in building relationships up um, uh, in Northern Ireland, right across communities. And I know it's difficult, and I said that earlier, it's difficult. But the, fa- the fact is that, that I can understand people um, from, from different backgrounds. I think that has helped me uh, an, an awful lot. Um, we have a huge issue here with the armed forces in Northern Ireland. So clearly my service in the armed forces uh, leads me into a position where I can help members of the armed forces. And I, and I kind of have a, an issue in regards to veterans um, uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, so, so I have to deal with, with that. But I, but I guess it's, it's that, it's that respect piece, um, you know, that, that, that you get and it's bred into you within the military to respect people, to respect opinions, um, that integrity piece, that, that professionalism piece. I think all of those really build into those that can add, you know, add something to, to, um, to politics. Of course, there's an awful lot of, you know, reading and, and, and digesting documents and understanding things. And I, and I said to you earlier on that I've got no educational qualifications and I still have got no educational qualifications. So I left school at 16 with nothing and I've still got nothing. Um, so in some ways it, it can be a little bit more difficult for me. So I have to read things maybe two or three times and digest it. Uh, and sometimes it can be difficult. Uh, I'm the justice spokesperson within the Ulster Unionist Party. So I deal with all things in regards to to justice, and that includes legacy, which includes the legacy of the troubles, which includes what's going on with our military veterans. Um, so, so sometimes you, you the, the, there's no way around it. You know, it's it's just having that mentality and that regime and that discipline um, to sit down and read through these documents and understand these documents and dissect and analyze these documents uh, and to be able to present them in a in a in a way that that people can understand. So, I think. That discipline piece is, is incredibly important in politics, and I get that purely from the military. Okay. And, and would there be a piece of advice that you'd give to other military looking at getting involved in politics from local government to devolved government to Westminster? What would that be? I, I would say two things. First of all, they will absolutely have something to offer. What They will definitely have something to offer. And, and, and I would say to any of them, get into politics. We have a proud history within the United Kingdom of of um, soldiers um, of all ranks getting themselves involved uh, in politics. So I would say to everybody, really think about it and really give it a go because we need we need people like you in politics here in Northern Ireland. And I know that fits exactly with your message, but that I'm absolutely convinced of that. Uh, the second thing I would say to people who want to get into politics is make sure you get the right party to join. If you're going in as an independent, then fine, you, you, you live with that yourself and it becomes like more difficult. But if you're going to go into politics, really look at who you're going to be part of, which political party you're going to be part of, um, because it, it not only has to be able to represent your views, but you need to have a voice and a platform within it. Whenever I was getting into politics, whenever I was asked to get into politics, I, I looked at um, uh, you know all of the different political parties and I and I really delved into who would be able to give me a platform to be able to present what I think is right for the people of Northern Ireland um, and who would give me that voice in, in the best way possible. And I looked at six different political parties, some I could discount very, very quickly and some I had to really think about. And I nearly joined the Northern Ireland Conservatives. Um, you know, La- Labour doesn't doesn't stand here in Northern Ireland apart from the SDLP, uh, Social Democratic and Labour Party, but they're a nationalist party and it would be difficult for me to, to join something like that because they, their aspiration is for United Ireland. Um, 
but to, to really look at the party uh, and, and make your decisions and not just to jump because you could absolutely expend you know, yourself in a party which has got no platform whatsoever. And I've seen people who have joined a political party which has no platform uh, and, and their skills were, were wasted. So really, really, really do your research and think about which party you're going to join if you're going to join a party. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much consistent with our advice. We at Campaign Force do not advocate one party over another. We're politically agnostic. However, we've got a fantastic network across the political parties. And we do yeah. say, you've just got to pick a team, work that out. You know, it might take you a while, like yourself, to work out what that team is. However, when you do, we can connect you to people within those teams. Um, yeah. So you've just got to pick a team. That's just the way our system works. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.